Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Over the last few weeks, there's been so much news coming out of the banking sector. We've jumped from crisis to crisis, on one continent to another. It's been hard to keep up with it all. But it's also had me wondering, why is this happening? Is there something bigger that I need to understand here? So, in a time like this, I figured, who better to turn to than my colleague Martin Wolf? He's the FT's chief economics commentator, and I wanted to talk with him so I could get beyond the day-to-day headlines of what's happening and move to a more existential place. A bank is designed to fail. See what I mean? We're going to cover a lot here today. But in short, Martin says banks fail because risk is built into their DNA. Sure, they hold our money, but they also have to take bets. These bets, well, they can backfire. Look at what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Martin says SVB illustrates this kind of identity crisis around how we think about banks. Some people think banks are institutions that should live and die by their own success. And to others, the government's desire to keep stepping in and backing them sort of makes them more like utilities. We get pretty upset if all the electricity got uh, cut off because our electric utility failed to manage perfectly obvious risks. And in the same way, we expect banks to continue to function. And the way we've ensured that is to give essentially an open-ended guarantee from the state that we will allow them to do so. Martin says we need to change how we understand banks so we can avoid another SVB. Do they live or die on the whims of capitalism? Or are they basically an arm of the state? We have to decide which it is. I'm Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. The FT's Martin Wolf has been covering all kinds of banking crises over his decades-long career. Today on Behind the Money, we're going to travel deeper into this wonky world of banking. How banks fail and why. And Martin's going to share what he thinks are the four paths that banking reform could take in the future. Hi, Martin. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be with you. Martin, banking news has dominated headlines for the last few weeks now. That's from Silicon Valley Bank in the U.S. to Credit Suisse in Europe. But first, I want to zoom out quite a bit here to ask a a very broad question. What would you say is the purpose of a bank? Now, that's a really good question. As we have designed them or as they have evolved, they have two different functions, which are not really very well matched. The first function is to provide people 
both households and businesses with the money that they need to manage their lives. This part of a bank is super important. It's the accounts where we keep our money and we can put it in and take it out whenever we want. This is known as a bank's liabilities. And then there's the second function, which is the side of the bank that takes bets. That's called the asset side. They're intermediaries, and the assets they hold are, by and large, risky assets. A lot of them are private sector risky assets, and these risky private sector assets might be mortgages, they might be long-term bonds, uh, they might be working capital, so short-term funds that can be rolled over. It's how they lend credit to other people and businesses. Having these two sides, assets and liabilities, operating in one place can lead to trouble. People have to get in their minds that this is a very strange combination of activities to have in one institution. And we have to deal with that. I wanted to kind of dig into this a little bit more because, I mean, just hearing this idea that an institution like a bank is designed to fail in the way that it operates and it's structured now. I mean, doesn't this strike you as a bit odd? I mean, what other business is designed to fail? Well, we would say that we need these businesses because they perform a vital economic function. The argument is people really want to hold safe liquid assets. It gives them comfort. But we want, as a society, for there to be a very large supply of relatively cheap and flexible credit to our economy. Martin says this can be tricky because we want both of these at the same time. And he says this goes back a long, long way. Of course, it's fragile. We know that. There have been banking crises and bank runs throughout the history of banking, going back all the way to the Florentines in the 15th century, and actually even in the ancient world. But the beauty of it is it provides the two things that people seem to want, namely liquid assets, money, and lots of credit activities. And then over time, We've been in a sort of race to try and uh, keep these two things together. Over time, we have radically improved the characteristics of banks and radically increased the support they get from the state in such a way that these undesirable properties are minimized. And the most convenient way we found to do that with a lot of government intervention has been to create this institution called a bank, which marries the two in the way that I've described. Martin believes that, in fact, banks have become so important that they should be considered more like an electric or a water company than a for-profit business. I think that, to me, the essential point is that banks are really our utilities. They're not and shouldn't be the prime risk takers in the economy. That's what we have equity for. And if they are to be seen as utilities, they don't need to be vastly profitable. They need to be run as utilities and be capitalized in ways that ensure that they will survive in tough times, because surviving in tough times is the most important thing banks can do. Right. So 
where do we take this from here? You have some ideas on that, I'm I'm guessing. As I see it, um, there are four options for dealing with the problems we've been seeing in the last few weeks and that, of course, have existed in the banking industry for a very long time. The first is go back to the free market. So that means let the banks fail. The government shouldn't step in at all. Seems pretty bold, right? But this free market approach does have its supporters. And Ken Griffin, who founded the hedge fund Citadel, is one of them. After SVB collapsed, he told the FT that the government shouldn't have bailed it out because letting the bank fail would have taught everyone a cold, hard lesson about something called moral hazard. That term essentially means that if you know you'll get bailed out, you'll probably make riskier choices. So uh, an obvious example is if your car is insured against damage in an accident, you might be inclined to drive more carelessly. And the same would apply in the banking case. If you're insured against the consequences of a banking failure, you're less likely to spend a significant part of each day trying to work out whether your bank is likely to fail. Martin basically thinks that Griffin's point is moot. Allowing uninsured depositors so the deposits of corporations and wealthy individuals to be lost in a run is not something states are now willing to do. And this is partly because these entities are very, very powerful, but it's also because they think if that happens, there will be a generalized run. And if that happens in a generalized way, it creates mayhem. So I believe there is an implicit, if not explicit, guarantee of all deposits. Now, would it be better if that were not the case in some theoretical sense? Is Ken Griffin right? Well, I think we have to go back far further than that. Uh, If Ken Griffin were right, and it really would help if depositors understood the risks they were running then we probably shouldn't have deposit insurance at all. But the big problem with the argument is that in practice, I don't think it's possible for depositors, even big depositors, to monitor in real time the state of the balance sheet of their banks. Uh, Because it's not transparent, they're very complicated. But in the end, the moral hazard argument doesn't work because people can't assess the risks. As you might have guessed, Martin's not 100% sold on that free market tough love idea. Just leaving them to the free market without any rules on capital and liquidity and no bailouts afterwards, that we know just leads to enormous banking crashes and disruption of the economy. And I just don't think that makes sense economically, and it certainly wouldn't make sense politically and socially. So the A better way to go is to make the system safer. It's not and cannot be actually saying, well, we'll go back to the wild wild west of capitalism when you could lose your money in a bank at any time, which really guaranteed that when runs started, they just became generalized and terrible. So that brings us to option two. Tighten regulation and improve transparency of banks. So we would insist that all banks that could conceivably be significant 
and conceivably have to be rescued would be subject to the same regulatory oversight in terms of capital requirements, liquidity requirements, stress tests as systemically significant banks. That will become a generalized rule for all uh, banks. You'd only exempt really small and insignificant banks. With option two, a bank like SVB would be in the same regulatory net as the banking giants. And that would have meant more scrutiny on the bank before it collapsed. But Martin says there's a third option here. The third possibility is to strengthen radically, and this would reduce the problems we've talked about, strengthen the soundness of banks, which continue to be, by and large, the same sorts of institutions as we've known in the past. Here's one way that Martin's noticed how to do that. One is to force banks to hold much higher capital or to have be financed by much more equity, which comes from two ac- academic economists, Anat Admati, who teaches in Stanford, and Martin Helwig, a German economist. Yeah, and on that higher capitalization that you're talking about, that's something that was put in after the financial crisis, right? So you're saying that should go up even more? Yes. Basically, on the eve of the financial crisis, we discovered, I wasn't aware of it, that banks had almost no equity capital at all. So we've discovered major banking institutions were operating with leverage of 40 or 50 to 1. And now that was obviously insane. So this capitalization has certainly dramatically improved. Those ratios Martin's talking about, that's referring to how leveraged a bank is. So, for example, for every $40 in assets, the bank would have $1 in equity. Since the financial crisis, banks have improved that leverage. It's more common now to see a 20 to 1 or 10 to 1 ratio. But Martin believes it's still not enough. You just need a bad economy or a big interest rate shock, and you're insolvent. And then you're in terrible territory. And the suggestion is, well, it should go to three to one. There's much more capacity to lose money. And that makes it much easier to lend to a bank for a central bank because they're much less likely to be actually bankrupt. I think the argument for higher equity is very, very strong. But of course, it would raise the cost of intermediation and lower the return on equity. So here's our options so far. Number one. Keep the government out of it. Let the banks fail. Number two, go the other way. Regulate more banks rather than fewer. And number three, strengthen banks by significantly reducing their leverage. But there's one more option, which Martin says is the most radical of them all. Essentially what it says is we've got to get away from this whole business of mismatching the asset and liability side of our financial core institutions of our financial system. And this is how that would work. What would happen is that if a financial institution offers its depositors perfect liquid assets, high money, which will always be worth a dollar in the dollar, it will never be discounted, then the assets this institution holds must match that. That That's to say they must be equally illiquid and safe. So there's no longer 
this intermediation within this institution. Money is money and the intermediary is fully matched. So assets and liabilities would have to align. One way to make that happen, Martin says by creating a digital currency that's issued by a central bank, not private ones. Essentially, that would allow everybody to bank with the central bank and it would become the dominant money in the system. And you would then say to the financial institutions that are left, you can continue to operate, continue to hold risky assets and so forth, but your liabilities must be in one of two forms. Either they must be like a mutual fund, so the value of your liabilities move with the value of your assets. And so there's essentially, instead of being a depositor in this mutual fund, you are an equity owner. And depending on the riskiness of the bank, the value of your equity would go up or down. And the alternative way of financing this would be to have longer term deposits, time deposits, plus a substantial wedge of equity uh, as well, again, to reduce the risk of a run and reduce the risk of insolvency. And the intermediation process in both cases would no longer have liabilities which have to be completely safe, completely liquid. Um, and these proposals will clearly make the financial system structurally sounder. There's no doubt about it. The debate, of course, is whether it would deprive the economy of credit supply on such a scale as to cripple it. I myself, I must say, I'm skeptical and I like these proposals, but no one has had the nerve and nobody wants to dare to bring in such a radical transformation of a financial system as this would imply. So which one should we go with? I would go at this stage with the combination of two and three. That is to say, tighten regulation, don't allow anyone outside the generalized net, make accounts more realistic, increase equity further, it's not enough. All of these things would increase the incentives of the management of shareholders of the bank to run themselves soundly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how likely is it, do you think, at this moment that governments, regulators will be looking to make these sorts of changes or would they rather sweep this under the rug and move forward? I think at this stage, it's not big enough to generate really big changes. Uh, the last financial crisis led to a big tightening of regulation. I would be very surprised if this didn't lead to a greater unification of the regulatory structure in the US for banks, that basically they don't want loopholes like SVB to survive. I hope uh, this precedent for ensuring deposits, if it's going to be there, will become explicit, not implicit. So the, if the FDIC ensures all deposits, uh, then that will clearly imply a very substantial increase in insurance fees and uh, very much tighter oversight. So that's, I think, the minimum that they can and should do um, if they want to manage the risks they have of further problems of this kind. You can't have banks outside the regulatory safety net in this way. I would like to see higher equity requirements, but I don't think it's going to happen. But at some stage, I think it's going to have to, um, because I believe we will have further crises. 
Well, thanks for being here, Martin. Pleasure. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Special thanks to Rob Armstrong and Josh Franklin. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.